This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Daryl Sturck about his new book, Indigenous Cultural Translation, A Thick Description of Sadiq Ballet. This book was published by Routledge in 2020. Daryl, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for agreeing to uh, speak with us about your new book. And um, so first of all, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about your Self and then also your research interest as well. Okay, um, thanks very much. I'm um, Daryl Sturk and um, in Mandarin, Shidailun, and in um, a language uh, mostly spoken in central Taiwan called Seidek, I'm uh, called Demu. Uh, Demu Dame. Dame is this uh, surname they give to uh, foreigners, and it has to do with the color of our eyes. Um, usually the, the surname is your father's name, but I didn't have a father who was uh, Saedic, so I got this other uh, surname. And I got this surname from uh, Dakis Bawan, the chief translator of Saedic Ballet, um, the feature film that uh, I wrote my book about and that we're talking about today. And Dakis, um, alas, has just passed away last week. And uh, they're holding his funeral uh, this morning in uh, in Taiwan, so I'd like to dedicate all I say to him. I actually dedicated the book to him and the other translators of the screenplay of this film. So um, I'm from Canada, and uh, I went to uh, Taiwan for the first time in 1995, uh, which was an important year. Uh, in 1994, Taiwan acknowledged its indigenous people as indigenous in the constitution. And in 1996, uh, Taiwan held its first uh, democratic presidential election. So today when I think about a country that's democratic and uh, that's trying to um, achieve uh, transitional justice or justice for its indigenous people, I think of Taiwan and not of uh, my home country, Canada. I got my uh, PhD in um, 2009, University of Toronto, in uh, Indigenous representation in uh, film and fiction. Mostly uh, it was directors and uh, novelists who were not themselves Indigenous, but they were um, making films about Indigenous people or writing novels about Indigenous people. and. Um, Meanwhile, in about uh, the year 2000, I became a Chinese-English translator. I did uh, reference letters and uh, study plans, and then I started freelancing, and I, I did all sorts of stuff, military, finance, technical translation, which in those days and 
mostly still today meant uh, sem semiconductors because of Taiwan semiconductor industry and legal translation. Basically anything that they had available, I, I translated and eventually I got into literary translation. And when I got the, um, my PhD in 2009, this translation experience helped me get a job. Um, so uh, if anyone is listening who's doing a PhD now, what you're doing your PhD in might not be exactly uh, what you get a job in. It'll be somehow related, but any experience that you have in life um, might help you get your first uh, gig. Um, it also translation experience also helped me get a job again in uh, 2011 when I started working at National uh, Taiwan University. And uh, right, so um, and my translation experience helped me get my third job at uh, Lingnan University in Hong Kong, where I'm now based. So. Um, in about 2011, I was studying uh, indigenous representation in film and fiction. I was working as a translator and I was teaching translation. And um, so I wanted to bring these three uh, together. I wanted to bring together indigenous uh, representation and uh, translation. And uh, this feature film, Saedic Ballet, um, known as Saedic Balai in, uh, in Mandarin, and uh, it's called Warriors of the Rainbow uh, in English, was my big chance because um, the film has a screenplay in uh, Mandarin, but the screenplay was translated into the indigenous language Sa'idic. So that's how I was going to bring together um, indigenous representation and translation. But there was one small problem. I could, um, I could handle Chinese to English translation, but... I didn't speak any Sa'idic. Yeah, so I didn't speak any Sa'idic. Um, so that leads on into uh, the second, uh, the second uh, question. Yeah, and then uh, we are interested to, uh, you know, to know how you started this project, and especially you just mentioned that about the language, right? The language uh, um, um, that you uh, don't know. So can you tell us a little bit about how do you start this project, it, the uh, process of this project? Right. Um, so the film was released in uh, September of uh, 2011. And um, my friend uh, Kareem Friedman, um, who's an anthropologist at uh, Donghua University, uh, gave me a chance to write about the film. And um, it's 10 years ago, almost exactly, that he, that he um, made the request or gave me the chance to write about the film for a blog that he um, founded called Savage Minds. And uh, Savage Minds has now been renamed Anthrodendum. It's this um, co-founded uh, anth anthropology uh, blog. So I wrote a post for this blog about how to translate the title of the film, Sa'edic Ballet, into English or Mandarin. So Sa'edic uh, means a person or people. It can be singular or plural. But it also uh, can mean uh, Sa'edic, uh, which is an ethnonym. It's uh, a name for uh, an ethnic group. It's also the name for, for a language. But here it means either person or uh, Sa'edic uh, people. And uh, ballet means true or real. Um, but it can also mean local, because uh, in certain uh, words like samabale, which means a cabbage, 
it's just like a true vegetable or local vegetable. Um, and I guess uh, the things that are familiar to you, or the things that uh, are found locally, are the things that you consider to be real, and things that come from far away. If you've never seen them before, they they somehow seem less uh, real or less true. So um, how to translate Saedic Ballet? Uh, literally, it's uh, something like true people um, or uh, real men. Uh, if uh, we're talking about warriors and the film is mainly an epic about uh, men. Now, real man is uh, idiomatic. It's a collocation. We, we often use these words together. Um, but other translations are possible. Um, a Saedic ballet was somebody who had fulfilled uh, expectations of the older generation, including the ancestors. And so it's possible to just to translate it as adult, to somebody who's filled, uh, fulfilled expectations to uh, contribute to um, the, the group and to be responsible. Um, but the, the way they fulfilled these expectations is a bit different from us. Um, uh, they didn't get their driver's licenses and, and, and jobs. They had to go on headhunts. They had to cut people's heads off. So um, um, another possible uh, translation would, would be hero, uh, someone who does uh, some sort of heroic deed. And the uh, archetypal heroic deed for them was, was cutting someone's heads off, uh, cutting on someone's head off. Um, another po possible translation is mensch, the, the German word, which I think has become a... a it's, uh, it's used often in English to mean a, like a true person, a, a real man, something like that. So um, true people is a uh, literal translation of uh, Saedic Ballet. It's a bit odd sounding, um, but an odd sounding translation is not a bad thing. It's a reminder that uh, their concept, uh, the Saedic concept in, uh, say, 100 years ago of adulthood or heroism or what it meant to be a mensch was was quite different from ours. Um, on the other hand, uh, we could also translate it uh, into more familiar sounding terms like uh, adult, hero, or mensch, uh, because the Saedic concept of adulthood and heroism is in flux, and uh, it's getting closer to ours, and um, it's probably now under the influence of the Mandarin terms uh, uh, for adult, chengren, or, uh, or for hero, ingxiong. I didn't know it at the time, um, in 2011, when I started working on this project, but Saedic Ballet is a phrase. Um, and uh, you, we, we know it's a phrase because you can split it up uh, with a, a pronoun. Uh, for example, Saedic uh, Ta Ballet Ka Ita uh, means uh, we, Ta is, uh, is we, uh, Saedic Ta Ballet, we are true people, or we, we are, are, are true men. And um, when I was writing this blog post for uh, Kareem Friedman's uh, blog, Savage Minds, I, um, I saw Iwan Bedding, one of the translators of the screenplay, on a talk show. And so I looked her up on the internet and I found her, uh, her email. And um, she was at Jingyi Dashue. So I wrote her an email at her uh, university account. Um, Providence University is the name of the university in English. And um, she replied to my email with uh, an explanation and uh, an elaborate answer to the questions I was asking about Saedic Ballet. And she invited me to Puli, which is um, a town in uh, central Taiwan in Nanto, Nanto uh, County. 
And um, so I met uh, Iwan in um, Puli, and I asked her how to say Hunter's Gift, because at the time I was working on um, the Hunter's Gift as a motif in um, short stories by Indigenous writers. And uh, it turns out that there's no way to say Hunter in, um, in Sa'idic. You'd say, like, a guy who goes into the forest. Kind of a euphemism, because I guess um, if you're going to go hunting, you're not going to tell, tell people, because they might, uh, I don't know, they might go hunting too and uh, try to follow along. Or um, And so you'd say, I'm going out, out to the forest. So her translation of uh, Hunter's Gift was, um, uh, she just used a uh, hunter that she knew. Bidding. Her father was named Bidding. The, the surname in Sadik is actually a patronym. It's just your father's given name. So the first sentence uh, I learned, uh, Iwan Bedding taught me, uh, was Ni'i Benegina Bedding, which means this is the gift of, uh, or what was given by uh, Bedding. And Bedding was this hunter. Her father was a hunter. Um, and um, Iwan, Iwan didn't just teach me uh, Sa'idic, she also welcomed me um, into the community and uh, into her life as her friend. And uh, by doing this, she's changed the direction of my research. She's uh, also changed the direction of my life. And I've come to see her and her colleagues, people like uh, Dakis Bowen, as uh, heroes. Um, so I wrote this book about them. Um, the book is, is about these heroes that rebelled against Japanese uh, colonial rule in 1930. My book is about these heroes of uh, cultural and linguistic revitalization. And um, so I wrote my book to celebrate them, and I'm, I'm happy to come on this podcast to, to tell you about them. Um, uh, I, think they, I, I think I have a lot to learn from them and that they have a lot to contribute to um, anyone's uh, idea today of what a, a good life uh, should be. Yeah, thank you for sharing with us how you started this project. And also, uh, you know, with this one email uh, with uh, Perlene and then started uh, this amazing project and also this amazing uh, work together with the uh, translators, uh, which I believe later uh, we will talk more about uh, each of their uh, contribution and also their uh, activism as well. Um, but before that, um, I guess uh, that started with the uh, book topic as well. So um, maybe we can start with the indigenous group, the Saedic. So can you briefly um, tell us a little bit about the uh, indigenous group, uh, the Saedic, and maybe the history, culture, and language? Sure. Um, so the Saedic, the, um, the government calls them a tribe. Um, but they also call the villages that they live in um, tribes. Um, and I, I prefer to call them nations, like uh, First Nations in Canada. Um, I, I think they're a distinct nation. And Taiwan now has 16 officially recognized uh, Indigenous uh, First Nations, and the Saedic are uh, one of them. They live all over the world now. Um, I've heard of uh, Saedic people in Hawaii and uh, Ottawa in Canada. But they mostly live in um, central Taiwan and east coast Taiwan, um, in the Taroko Gorge area, but also south of uh, the Taroko Gorge. And they have several different uh, origin stories. Um, the best known is uh, the Pusu Kohoni. And uh, Pusu means uh, root or stem. 
and kahoni means a tree. So it's like the root tree or the stem tree. It's the tree that uh, they all came from. And I guess there, if it's if it's a, a flowering and fruiting tree, then uh, every Saitic person is like a fruit on this tree of life. And um, so they believe that they, um, or they believed that, or in their origin story, um, the first people came out of this uh, tree, which uh, grew out of a rock. And um, so I think it's an interesting metaphor for the um, transformation of inorganic um, substrate, like a rock, into life, into a, a living, um, into a, a living organism, a tree. So they um, they came out of this tree, the first man and woman, and uh, they had uh, children, and these children had children, and they went to this village called uh, Truan. The um, the first village was called Truan, and Truan is probably uh, the place of three, Tedu, uh, An. Uh, An is um, a suffix that is often added to Saitic words that are places, and Tedu uh, means three. So Truan uh, literally is uh, is place of three, and um, they called it that probably uh, because they'd already divided into um, three groups, the Digadaya, the Doda, and the uh, Truku, and the Truku in uh, Japanese are called the Taroko. So the, the Taroko Gorge in the original language is the Truku uh, Gorge. Taroko is just what the Japanese called it. Um, and so there, there were these three groups. And um, this has influenced our analysis of their language into three dialects, uh, Dagadaya, Doda, and Truku, and also a political analysis. When the first Japanese ethnographers uh, arrived in central Taiwan about 100 years ago or uh, 120 years ago, uh, they found these three groups. Um, these three... Right, so um, they were living in Truan and uh, eventually they uh, moved away from Truan in groups um, to form new villages. And um, uh, one of these groups eventually went to the east coast and... Uh, uh, down the Paroka Gorge and then north and south from there. The uh, Saitic people, like all of Taiwan's indigenous peoples or First Nations, are part of um, the Austronesian inflection of the Neolithic uh, Revolution. They were uh, horticulturalists or, or farmers. They, um, yeah, they were uh, horticulturalists or farmers. They uh, planted millet. In, a, in addition to uh, gathering and hunting and uh, headhunting. They were mostly autarkic, which means that they, um, they uh, found almost everything they needed for their daily life in the local um, environment. Jodi Chutai, the Gainian. And um, they practiced uh, Swidden agriculture, um, which means that they slash and burned uh, part of the forest and planted stuff. And then soon the land was exhausted uh, and then they moved on, um, but they would often rotate around. So it's not like they were um, degrading the environment. Sometimes actually the Swidens uh, were more uh, biodiverse than the, uh, the forest um, that uh, had not been um, uh, occupied by, by, by people. Um, actually, the, most of the forest in, um, in, in Taiwan, uh, at some point or other, people have lived there. The, the landscape bears the signs of human uh, habitation and there's really not any 
Yunsi Sunlin. There's not any pristine or untouched uh, forest anywhere in Taiwan or anywhere anywhere in the world, um, actually. They they lived in these uh, small uh, mobile uh, groups of about 50 people. And then in the 19th century, they um, started to settle down with um, the introduction of uh, modern technology. They had guns by the end of the, the 19th century. So the, the villages got larger and larger and um, uh, less and less mobile. So they started to settle down, basically. They were stateless um, or marginal to, to states or uh, people against the state uh, until about 120 years ago. Uh, after the Japanese took control of uh, Taiwan in 1895. They submitted to the Japanese in uh, the 1900s and 1910s. And uh, so in 1930, uh, stateless life, the free life that they had enjoyed before the Japanese came, uh, was living memory in, uh, in 1930. And it was in 1930 on October 27th that... Uh, a uh, Dugadaya Sa'idic uh, chief, where Dugadaya was one of the three groups, uh, Dugadaya Sa'idic chief Monorudo um, led a rebellion uh, against uh, Japanese rule. About 300 warriors from six different uh, Dugadaya villages um, were part of this coalition that attacked a gathering in um, Wuxia. At the time, it was called Musha. It was a hill station. Uh, that the Japanese built um, because it's really hot in, in Taiwan in the summer. So uh, up in the hills, it's about 1,100 meters above sea level. So uh, up there, it's a little bit cooler. So you can call it a hill station like the the Japanese hill stations in or the Indian hill stations in, uh, in, in India that the British built. And it was supposed to be a resort. Um, so they had this gathering of... Uh, Japanese uh, officials. Um, it was a sports day actually for kids uh, for, from three different schools. So uh, they had the sports day and uh, all sorts of um, VIPs or dignitaries were gathered there. So Munarudo uh, led this attack on, on this gathering of Japanese people and 134 of them were killed. Many of them were, were shot or speared, but uh, some of them were headhunted. And um, then the Japanese uh, pacified uh, the rebellion. And uh, during the pacification, they enlisted um, Doda and Truku. The Doda and the Truku were the other two groups. So um, during the um, reprisal or the pacification, uh, the Doda and Truku warriors collaborated with the Japanese. And um, after the rebellion was put down, uh, these collaborators were uh, rewarded with uh, Digadaya territory. Um, Formerly, uh, Dugadaya villages were kind of just given to the uh, to the collaborators, and the um, people from these villages, the Dugadaya villagers um, from villages that had rebelled, uh, they were moved to this other village north of Puli called uh, Kawanakajima, Chuanzhongdao, um, and um, in Mandarin it's known as uh, Qingliu, Qingliu Buluo. And uh, in Sa'idic, it's called Alang Gluban. Alang is their word for uh, village, and Gluban is the name of the village. And um, so they lived there in kind of concentration camp-like conditions because the Japanese were worried they would rebel again. Uh, but then in the 1940s, uh, many uh, young men 
from uh, uh, Alan Gluban volunteered to fight uh, for uh, um, Hirohito in the uh, Japanese Imperial War effort. There were many uh, volunteers from um, from Xingliu Bulu. Um, and there's a, a documentary film actually that I just heard about yesterday called uh, Guanhuai Gao Shazu, uh, showing solicitude for the Takasaigo uh, soldiers who volunteered uh, to fight in uh, Japanese Imperial Army. Um, so uh, most of these volunteers did not come back. Uh, only like two in uh, two and twenty managed to make it home uh, from the war. The rest died uh, or went missing in action. After the war, when um, the uh, KMT took over, uh, the Sa'idic people, um, they weren't suppressed um, as a people, but the language was suppressed. Um, in in post-war Taiwan, the KMT uh, instituted two main policies that affected indigenous people. One was Gaoshan um, Pengdihua. Uh, they were trying to turn the uh, high mountain areas into, uh, into plains, like into flatland. Not literally, but they were trying to raise um, indigenous living standards so indigenous people would would have the same living standards as Taiwanese people. And they also moved indigenous people. They moved indigenous villages to um, lower lying uh, areas closer to train stations so they could uh, govern them better. Um, they could educate them and, uh, and uh, police them. Um, the language was suppressed. Um, the second policy that the KMT instituted was uh, national language policy, Guo Yu And the Guo Yu in those days was uh, monolingual. There was just the one language that you were allowed to speak. And if you um, spoke another language, like Taiwanese or Sa'idic, uh, the teacher uh, would humiliate you. They, they made you wear dog tag. Um, and um, often they, they didn't really um, try their hardest to educate uh, indigenous kids. They, a friend of mine um, who became a police officer and then uh, later on got a PhD in indigenous literature, he was put in a, a class called a fang niu ban. I'm not sure how to translate that, but it's, um, it's a, a class for kids that are not academically gifted and the teacher doesn't really teach anything. And uh, uh, so that, that was the kind of education that a lot of indigenous kids uh, got. Then in the 1980s and 1990s, there was an indigenous movement in Taiwan and a Shungan movement, uh, uh, I guess a search for roots or a quest for roots that the Sa'idic people uh, participated in. In 1994, as I mentioned at the beginning, the, the government recognized indigenous people as people and then in 1996, they recognized uh, indigenous peoples as uh, like the individuals were members of uh, First Nations. Um, but that didn't include the Sa'idic because according to um, Japanese um, analysis of the different ethnic groups, there were only uh, eight ethnic groups or nine ethnic groups, Jozu. Um, but there was this mechanism for further recognition. And in, in 2004, the government recognized the Truku people of the East Coast who live uh, north and south of the Taroka Gorge, probably to get their vote. Um, they were hoping that, that these people would vote for the, uh, the DPP and the Democratic Progressive Party. And then in 2008, the Sa'idic people of central Taiwan uh, in Nanto, who, man, many of them who, who now live in Puli, the town of Puli, uh, were recognized as a distinct people. 
And that was the year before the translation of uh, the screenplay of uh, uh, Saedic Ballet, um, Warriors of the Rainbow in English, the feature film that I wrote my book about. Yeah, thank you, Daryl. And especially this uh, great overview in terms of this Saedic group in the uh, uh, um, colonial uh, um, period, their experience and also history, and later on in the post-war and uh, post-war period, post-war Taiwan, the uh, still there is still this linguistic alienation. But recently, the social movement, uh, political landscape, and also cultural discourse about uh, indigenous uh, group uh, in Taiwan. So uh, I guess now the next question will be the uh, about the feature film that you mentioned. So can you tell us about uh, the film and then how the Saedic uh, and then how this uh, colonial experience is being represented in the film? Yeah, okay, great, great question. Thank you very much. Um... The film is uh, uh, Warriors of the Rainbow in English. And um, it's called that because um, apparently they believe that uh, it, a warrior that had headhunted uh, got to cross this rainbow bridge into the afterlife. Um, and uh, that was the qualification for, for getting to the afterlife. If you hadn't headhunted, uh, you hadn't displayed your bravery and showed that you were willing to make a contribution to the defense of the uh, the village, then uh, you, you didn't go to hell, but uh, you didn't get to go to the afterlife. Um, and then the uh, the title in, in Mandarin is often Saedeka Balai or Saedic Ballet. Saedeka Balai in Mandarin is a transliteration of Saedic Ballet, a true person, real man in, uh, in, in Saedic or hero, or uh, mensch. And the uh, screenplay of this film um, was written by this uh, guy called uh, Wei De Sheng, uh, who's a Presbyterian um, from Tainan, um, city in southern Taiwan. And he he's famous, uh, he became famous for the first time for a movie called Hai Jiao Qi Hao, which was a sleeper hit in the fall of, I think, uh, 2007. And it made a pile of money and... Um, but uh, Wei De Sheng had been interested in indigenous people uh, since the 1990s. And the first uh, um, big screenplay he wrote was uh, for, for Saedeka Balai, for this uh, feature film, epic feature film about uh, the Saedic people. His uh, screenplay was based on a comic book by um, a comic artist called Cho Rolong uh, that was published in 1990. And it was just called Usha Shijin, the, uh, the Musha incident or the Usha incident when Monoruto, um, this Tagadaya chief, led a rebellion against Japanese colonial rule in 1930. Um, and uh, Wei, kind of like me and Iwan Bedding, he wrote a, I don't know if they had email in those days, but he found some way to get in contact with uh, this comic artist, uh, Cho Rolong, and uh, went to meet him, and uh, I think in Puli. And um, Cho Rolong, by that time, in late 1990s was uh, uh, making a documentary film called Gaia. And Gaia is the Saedic word for culture or morality. And I guess the idea was that uh, Munaruto uh, attacked the Japanese in 1930 to defend Gaia, to defend uh, Saedic uh, um, culture or uh, morality. And that I guess it was a moral, uh, it was ethical or moral of, uh, of Mona to resist uh, colonial rule and defend uh, his territory. 
Um, and so Wei uh, was already in film by that point, and he um, ended up being the audio guy for this documentary that Cho Rolong was making called uh, Gaia. He held the boom, um, the microphone, uh, when uh, Cho, Cho Rolong was conducting interviews with survivors of the Musha incident. Uh, Cho Rolong, or Wei, Wei Sheng was there uh, holding the boom and bearing witness to uh, the oral history that's in the documentary. Um, and so he, he decided to make a, to write a screenplay about it in Mandarin. Um, and he uh, based uh, his uh, fundraising short film. He made a short film in 2003, which uh, you probably saw and many people saw, uh, about seven or eight minutes in, um, in order to raise uh, funds for the production of, uh, of, of this film. And he shot the film in Saedic. And because um, uh, he wanted to make a, a historical epic uh, film that was uh, authentic, that was true to the history. And in the history, um, uh, Munarudo and the other warriors, they would have spoken uh, Saedic. So he wanted uh, them to speak Saedic in his film. So he got this, um, this translator called Dakis Bawan um, uh, to, to translate the, uh, the dialogue in this uh, short film. And um, the short film um, got um, a lot of people watched it. So uh, there was a lot of interest, but nobody was willing to pay to, to fund it. So um, it just kind of disappeared. And uh, then uh, he made Hai Jiao Chi Hao, and then he had enough money to, uh, to contemplate making um, uh, the epic feature film, Saedika Balai. And the same, the same thing. He wanted to make it in the languages that were spoken in 1930, so mainly Japanese and uh, Saedic. So he got a, a team of translators to translate the screenplay uh, into uh, two dialects of Saedic, uh, Degadaya and Doda. So Daki Spawan was the chief translator for Degadaya, and Wadandiro was the uh, chief translator for the Doda uh, uh, dialogue. And the film uh, explains the Monarudo's rebellion in terms of Saedic belief in the uh, Rainbow Bridge, uh, that a, a warrior to be qualified to go into the afterlife, a warrior had to headhunt. Um, and so Mona loses the, leads this rebellion so that uh, all of the young men in the village can have the, the qualification to go into the afterlife. And um, the film is uh, pretty obviously part of uh, Wei De Sung's uh, uh, Taiwan nationalism. It's kind of like a Taiwanese Braveheart. Um, it's uh, it's easily uh, interpretable as a national Taiwan uh, Taiwanese allegory, where the uh, the Japanese represent the various uh, um, foreign regimes, alien regimes, uh, from the Dutch uh, through to the KMT that have uh, 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 taken over Taiwan and subjugated uh, Taiwanese people. Uh, but the Taiwanese people, according to this film, are, are going to resist uh, colonial rule. And nobody, no matter who, is trying to um, impose um, uh, an alien regime upon them. So it's obviously based on this epic struggle uh, against colonial rule. And um, he wrote the screenplay for this in uh, newly democratic uh, Taiwan. Um, so epic is not exactly a democratic um, uh uh, genre, it's um, it, it it's part of or comes out originally warrior society, uh, based on uh, violent struggle. 
So um, the way I think of EPIC is um, in a democratic context is that it's an approach to um, conflicts, uh, not just uh, with outsiders like the KMT or the Dutch or whoever, but also between um, traditionalists and pragmatists. And in the movie, uh, Mona Rudo, the leader of the rebellion, is a traditionalist. But there's another um, chief, Dugadaya uh, chief, Tado Nokan, who uh, doesn't want to rebel against the Japanese. He's a pragmatist. There's also conflicts between men and women in the film. Uh, for example, between Monorudo and his wife, uh, Bakanwalis. And uh, I think uh, his wife is also a pragmatist. She doesn't want to rock the boat. And uh, the, there was no way the rebellion was going to succeed. So um, Bakan, Bakanwalis, his wife, uh, probably just wanted to, to maintain the status quo and try to, um, try to live um, under Japanese rule, to try to make the best of it. Um, there's also conflicts in the film between uh, people who want to resist and uh, people who will collaborate. Uh, between um, conflict between uh, Monorudo and Demu Wallis is the leader in in uh, history and in the film of the Doda uh, collaboration with the the Japanese. But uh, Demu Wallis is not represented as being um, just a, a collaborator, as being bad or, or evil or anything like that. He's a pretty heroic. Uh, character in his own way, and um, he's um, he's one of the only characters that has a friendship with a Japanese person. So he's friendly to the to these outsiders, and and that's not a bad thing. Um, and and the movie kind of dramatizes this uh, this conflict between uh, someone who's going to resist uh, and and someone who um, can make friends with uh, with foreigners. And then there are also conflicts between um, or within individuals. Uh, the Hanaoka, Hanaoka uh, brothers, uh, Huagang Ilang, Huagang Erlang, are these brothers in the film uh, that were, um, um, they were educated in Japanese and the Japanese hoped that they would be the next generation to help uh, police or govern the, their own people. But then they went and participated in the, in the rebellion. And then they, in a famous, um, um, in a famous suicide, they decided after the rebellion that they're, uh, there was no hope that it was going to end well. So they, they committed suicide with their family and, and the elder one uh, uh, committed seppuku, uh, the Japanese style of suicide. And the, and the younger one uh, hung himself from, uh, uh, hanged himself from, from the limb of a, a tree, which was the traditional uh, saedic uh, form of suicide because they wanted to return to the pusukohoni, the, the tree of life that they believed that they came from. So... Um, uh, people have seen uh, like a psychological conflict within uh, the Hanaoka brothers between um, uh, their identity as, as Saitic people and then uh, their aspiration for for uh, uh, modern culture, uh, Japanese culture. Um, uh, they they I, they pretty uh, obviously saw themselves as uh, people. They were trying to bring uh, modern civilization to their to their people. Yeah, and then thank you for this um, sort of a summary, but also the incredible highlights that uh, you just uh, take us uh, go through this uh, film. So uh, you mentioned that this film, uh, according to the Dr. Wei Desheng, is uh, being produced uh, in its original language. And then so I guess my next question is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Wei Desheng's uh, screenplay, and especially, you know, uh, how the screenplay uh, 
transform from earlier version to uh, 2011? And what do you think about his Mandarin language screenplay before the uh, translation process? Sure. Um, all right. The history of the the screenplay. Well, um, he starts uh, uh, thinking about writing a screenplay in about 1996, but the uh, the story starts in um, in 1916 when uh, this ethnographer uh, records a song about headhunting in uh, Katakana, um, and then he publishes the song in Katakana in in 1917, and um, then in 1927, there's this um, linguist uh, who uh, goes through uh, Saitic land, uh, both central Taiwan and east coast Taiwan, and he records stories. And one of the stories he recorded was the story of the soul's passage uh, across the uh, the Rainbow Bridge. Um, and he recorded the story in, in international phonetic alphabet, so basically in Saitic. And he published that in 1935. And then after the war, in the early 1990s, actually, um, the, both uh, the song and the story were retranslated into central uh, Taiwan um, Truku Saedic by a god called uh, Shen Mingren. Um, uh, Bawan Tanah is his name in, uh, in Saedic. Uh, but I called him Shen Mingren in the book. And um, he often retranslated the song and the story not based on doc the documents, the original documents, or on oral history. Uh, on interviews he was conducting with elders in the villages, but on his imagination. And uh, I, I have a lot of examples of this in chapters three and four in the book. Um, and uh, I, I said that he kind of wildly reimagined uh, this material, but he did, it's wild in a good way. Um, he uh, just kind of re re rewrote uh, a lot of the, the stories and songs that uh, were recorded for the first time by Japanese uh, ethnographers and linguists. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And Shen Mingren uh, was a subtitler for uh, Cho Rulong's uh, documentary film Gaia uh, and also uh, Cho Rulong's interviewers. So Wei De Sheng was the audio guy and Shen Mingren was the subtitler. So uh, Shen Mingren uh, met Wei De Sheng in the late 1990s. And uh, Wei De Sheng includes uh, a couple of uh, Shen's translations of the song and the story that I mentioned uh, in his Mandarin screenplay. And then he edited the screenplay from uh, 2000 to 2009, and even a little bit in 2010 after they had started shooting. Uh, what do I think about the, the screenplay? Um, I think it's great for what it is. Uh, it's a commercial uh, epic feature film. Um, it, um, it's a sincere attempt to represent historic uh, Saitic uh, history and culture, and it's based on historical documents in in Japanese, uh, but it's also based on uh, Wei's understanding of Saitic uh, perspectives. And he, in the film, he represents various Saitic perspectives on the incident. And many are critical of Monoruto. It's not like everybody is supporting the the fellow who leads the rebellion. Uh, many people in the film are 
or critical of him. So the film may employ this trope of the noble savage, um, but it doesn't do so uncritically. Um, and it's not like Monoruto is the only noble savage. Um, it's not the only heroic uh, individual in the film. Uh, collaborators like Tamu Wallis are also represented as uh, sadic ballet, as, as noble. And some of the Japanese as well. Um, the film, the screenplay, is also a sincere attempt to represent some sadic concepts that uh, Monoruto would have um, uh, justified uh, his, his rebellion uh, using. Um, one example is Shieji uh, Zuling, uh, which is a blood uh, ritual to the ancestral spirits. And it sounds pretty odd in, in Chinese, I think, Shieji uh, Zuling. Uh, another example is Zuling, uh, the Guifan, uh, which is, uh, um, it literally means the ancestral spirits uh, norms, uh, which is also a little bit odd sounding. It's kind of sociological. But um, Wei De Sung was drawing on Shen Mingren's translation of uh, Seda concepts. The concepts were uh, Demahun. Shiji uh, Zuling is an attempt to describe uh, Demahun which uh, is from uh, the root uh, hun, um, meaning ladle, hu'un actually, uh, or hu'er, um, meaning ladle, like what you uh, serve uh, soup with. And uh, demahun was a ceremony that they conducted to restore balance and uh, to achieve justice or to reconcile or also to share. Because uh, when you serve soup with a ladle, you're, you're sharing it out to, to different people. And Duling uh, de Guifan was an attempt to uh, translate Gaia, uh, which is a Sadic word meaning uh, way of life, ancestral tradition, or morality. And um, these two terms uh, were back translated into Sadic in different ways, um, including the Mahuan and Gaia by, by Dakis Bawan and the other translators. Um, and so I think that Wei's attempt to uh, describe uh, Sadic concepts uh, in Mandarin enriches his film. And if you can appreciate the, the back translation of these concepts into, uh, into Sadic, all the different ways that the translators back translated Shiji uh, Zuling, blood sacrifice to the ancestral spirits, and Zuling the Guifan, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, norms or uh, of the ancestral spirits. Um, if you can appreciate the way that he back translated, uh, they back translated these these two terms. Uh, it enriches the film the film even further. I think the film was a lot more interesting if if you know about the translation. Yeah, thank you for uh, this uh, textual history about Wei Dexun's uh, screenplay, and especially the uh, history uh, from colonial time, the different uh, uh, archival references, and then the history, and also the different perspective and concept that Wei uh, trying to uh, attempt to uh, represent in the film. So uh, you mentioned uh, back translation and how the um, um, the uh, translator work with this uh, Mandarin uh, language screenplay. But before that, I guess um, maybe we can unpack your uh, argument and also maybe the book title itself. So uh, the book title, I mean, the subtitle is a thick description of Sadiq uh, um, um, Ballet. So can you tell us a little bit about the thick uh, description and also what do you mean by indigenous cultural translation? 
Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, the subtitle is A Thick Description of Sadik Ballet. Um, and a thick description is from um, Gilbert Ryle, is a British uh, philosopher of uh, language. And I think he published this in 1971, but people know about thick description because uh, Clifford Geertz, the anthropologist, applied uh, thick description to ethnography in a famous uh, book in 1973. So um, starting with Gilbert, Gilbert Ryle, Gilbert Ryle contrasted uh, winks and blinks. Um, and if, so if you wink at somebody, uh, you're trying to communicate with them. Um, but if you blink, then your eyes are dry. And uh, Ryle claimed that uh, maybe to somebody um, looking at you, you wouldn't be able to tell if it's a wink or a blink just based on the eye flap, just based on the, the visual observation of the person. To say that it's a, um, a wink, you have to assume that it was, a, it was communicative, that, that the person was trying to communicate with you. Um, and so you have to make assumptions about uh, psychology. And so thick description is actually deep description in uh, Ryle's account. It's psychological uh, description. And sometimes um, thick description in Mandarin is translated shendu miao xie, shen miao, which is literally uh, deep description, not thick description. Um, because it's it refers to uh, depth psychology, to what's going on in people's uh, minds. And um, uh, Ryle and Gears were both part of the cognitive revolution that we associate with Noam Chomsky and his uh, criticisms of uh, B.F. Skinner, uh, behaviorism. So Skinner just looked at uh, surface observation, what you, what you can observe of people's uh, use of language or the way people are behaving without um, any reference to what's going on in people's heads, without any kind of uh, theory of cognition. And so with uh, Noam Chomsky and then uh, Ryle and, and Geertz in, in different ways and in different fields, uh, people started trying to study what was going on in people's heads. They tried to study uh, cognition. And so Ryle's point, I think, uh, was that any description in psychology depends on some sort of theory of cognition of what's going on in people's heads. It's an interpretation of what's going on in people's heads. Uh, hence, uh, any description is uh, an interpretation. And this is also true in linguistics. If you try to describe a, a sentence in, in, in a given language, your description depends on your interpretation of the language. Uh, I think it's probably true in, in any field. Uh, anyway, so um, Geertz, uh, as an ethnographer, somebody who writes about culture, was uh, trying to study what was going on in people's heads. For him, culture was what was going on in, in people's heads. And uh, so it was also uh, how we uh, interpret the world. And um, so according to Geertz, the, uh, the task of the ethnographer is to describe the, uh, the web of culture. He called it the web of culture. And this is decades before the, the internet. So he was thinking about a spider's web. And um, so the spider's web is, is his uh, metaphor for culture. And spider's web is, is uh, nodes and strands. And the nodes are, uh, represent concepts, in cultural concepts in, in people's uh, uh, culture or words in people's language. And the strands are the meaningful associations of concepts or the syntactic associations of words uh, when we combine words into phrases. And according to, to Geertz, um, the web, the web of culture is how people make the world meaningful 
or how they figure out what's going on around them and how they understand themselves and in relation to other people and how they uh, find a place in the world. And the web is thick in that there are a lot of concepts and a lot of words in anyone's culture or language that are densely interconnected. Um, and in this sense, and in the sense that the strands uh, between the uh, concepts or the words are, are thick uh, for cultural keywords like uh, Dumahuan, this uh, ritual of re reconciliation or sharing, or for Gaia, what uh, means cultural morality. Those are keywords in Sa'idic. So those, the strands between those keywords are going to be are going to be really thick. So uh, the web is thick in, in the two ways that hair can be thick. You can have a thick head of hair. You got a lot of hair, or the individual strands of some of the individual strands of hair can be thick. Um, and so when you're studying indigenous people, uh, like Geertz was doing, and like I'm doing, I'm trying to do. Um, you notice some things like uh, the web of culture is in flux. It's not like it's uh, static. There's no like cultural essence there that's never changing. The, uh, the web is constantly getting respun. And uh, for indigenous people, especially, there's a threat of uh, that the web might disappear, that the language might um, not uh, be spoken anymore in, in a few decades. Sadik uh, today is mostly spoken by people over the age of 50. Um, so by grandparents and uh, not by parents or, or children. Um, and for indigenous people, they usually speak more than one language. At least the people who can sp still speak uh, Sadik, they speak both Sadik and, uh, and Mandarin. So they have multiple webs and translators will try to get these webs to line up somehow. And um, translators will have more than one web there's going to be more more than one web because everyone is going to have his or her own web. And so you're going to get all these different webs, which you could imagine trying to layer on top of one another. And, and um, so this these thickly layered webs uh, represent all sorts of different perspectives that people might have or positions that they might take um, within the community or even outside the community. Uh, people like me have like edic outsiders perspectives uh, and we have our own um, uh, webs of, of Sa'idic culture, which are, are models of, of simplified models of Sa'idic culture. And as I uh, think I said, uh, these webs can coexist in the same person. Uh, one person's mind will have these multiple webs that you try to get to line up through translation. Um, so the thick description in my book was um, an approach to translation. Uh, uh, what I did was to try to describe the screenplay and its translation of Sadic Ballet thickly. Uh, so the thick description of translation is how translators make meaning of uh, the text that they're translating and how they orient themselves in the world uh, on their own terms. Um, so thick description of translation requires the, the scholar like me to uh, understand what's going on in the language. Um, an example is, uh, uh, it's this deed um, of our father, Monorudo. Uh, and this appears in one of the last scenes in the film, uh, Mono, Monorudo's son. After Monorudo dies, uh, his son uh, meets with uh, his sister and they uh, reminisce about their father. And uh, he tells her to celebrate the great uh, heroic noble deed uh, of their father in rebelling against the, the Japanese. 
and it's a translation of Zhao Ao in Mandarin, which means uh, proud. And it turns out that that Zhao Ao is very difficult to translate into into Sa'idic. The translators claim it's there's no uh, kind of Sa'idic analog of uh, of Zhao Ao. Um, I don't it, completely agree, but that that's what they say. Anyway, in this case, they translated Zhao Ao into uh, Ndan, which is kind of like deed. But um, Ndan is uh, from uh, Moda. It's uh, derived from Moda, uh, which means it's a verb meaning to go along or across uh, the rainbow bridge. So uh, Ndan is a, a great heroic deed that would qualify you to go across uh, the rainbow bridge. And that would inspire what we can call Zhao Ao or pride in, uh, in the descendants of this, of this person. And um, I think um, it. Uh, I think one can say that Sa'idic ideas of what counts as an Indan, as a heroic uh, deed, have have changed quite a lot since uh, since 1930. That what would count today as Indan is very different from from uh, 100 years ago because uh, they don't headhunt anymore. So uh, they have other ideas of of what qualifies a person to be uh, an adult or a hero. Um, and I think you also asked about the title of the of the book, Indigenous Cultural Translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, the um, I intended the title uh, in two different senses. Um, the first one was that they are translating according to their cultural knowledge, and that's a, a very Geertzian understanding of translation, where where uh, culture is the means by which or the medium in which you understand anything, including the text that you're translating. So um, in this uh, reading of the title, uh, indigenous culture is the means or medium. Um, and it's like the, a spider catches its prey in, in a web or using a web. So the web is, is uh, a means or an instrument, but the spider is also walking around on the web. So the spider lives in the web like we live in culture. The other... Um, sense of indigenous cultural translation is uh, uh, translated translation media mediated transformation where indigenous culture is the object so uh, through indigenous cultural translation culture gets translated or transformed and um, this is actually um, relates to the etymology of the word translation it used to be uh, to move relics the original uh, sense of translation is to move relics from one uh, reliquary or one church to to another, and then it became a metaphor for uh, not just moving through space but also changing. Like in Shakespeare, I think in A Midsummer's Night's Dream, uh, uh, Bottom, this character in the, in in that play gets uh, translated, meaning changed. So translation becomes a metaphor for for change, and um, today people know about cultural translation. Uh, mainly because of Homi Baba, or Homi Baba is one of the first people that you think of. And um, in his theory of cultural trans translation, um, translation means transformation. And his theory was about what happens to uh, migrants, like himself. Uh, Homi Baba is born in India and, and gets educated in the UK and uh, then works in, uh, in the United States, so he's a migrant. And in his theory, a migrant can be uh, both an object and a subject. So when a migrant crosses borderlines, like goes to the UK or goes to the US, 
um, the migrant gets transformed uh, by the uh, experience as an object of, uh, of translation. But the migrant is also a subject. Um, and so the migrant also translates himself or herself. And uh, in translating himself or herself, uh, uh, he or she transforms himself or herself and maybe even transforms other people. Uh, because if you have enough migrants in a country, they're going to transform that country. Uh, they're going to transform individuals that they make friends with and maybe even the, the national culture. Like, um, like everyone else, um, uh, Sadic people have been transformed by uh, circumstances beyond their control. Uh, but they've also uh, actively adapted and they've transformed themselves and they might well transform Taiwan. Uh, they certainly uh, changed the course of Wei Sheng's life and uh, uh, Ewan Bedding and Daki Spawan and the other translators have changed the course of my life. Um, now, Homi Baba wasn't himself a translator. Uh, he didn't translate between different languages. Uh, um, and for a translator, uh, translation is more than just a metaphor of transformation. Uh, cultural translation for me includes interlingual translation between Mandarin and English or between Sa'idic and Mandarin as a means of cultural transformation. It's partly by translating between Sa'idic, Mandarin, Japanese, and English that Sa'idic people um, develop some idea of uh, where they come from, who they are, and uh, who they want to be. Um, so I guess the book started with uh, this big question, uh, how would they translate? How would indigenous translators translate? And there are different answers that we could come up with or hypotheses we can come up with uh, based on translation studies. Uh, indigenous people are traditional, so they should be loyal to the uh, original. They should faithfully transmit the uh, meaning of the text uh, uh, in the target uh, language. Um, but at the same time, indigenous people are oral. Uh, indigenous languages are, are even today mainly oral. Um, and oral translation in translation studies is freer than written translations. So we might expect them to translate freely to just translate the uh, gist. So these possible hypotheses in translation studies are contradictory. And um, possible hypotheses in uh, minority translation studies are also contradictory. Um, in minority translation studies, we might expect that uh, the Sa'idic are speakers of a relatively weak language. Sa'idic is a weak language vis-a-vis uh, -vis Mandarin. Uh, and when you translate from a strong language to a weak language, you're going to tend to foreignize. You're going to tend to translate uh, literally. And when you translate from a weak language to a strong language, you're going to tend to domesticate. Uh, you're going to try tend to use terms that people in the target language are familiar with. You're not going to challenge people to understand uh, your language on its own terms, you're going to use terms that they're familiar with. Um, so that's one possible uh, hypothesis in minority translation studies. Another hypothesis is that actually uh, indigenous speakers, speakers of indigenous language, they are proud of their uh, languages and cultures, and uh, they're worried about the uh, possible disappearance of their, of their languages. And so they're going to tend to uh, domesticate into their languages. They're going to use some um, Sa'idic terms to translate texts in, in Mandarin. They're not going to translate those Mandarin texts uh, uh, directly or, or literally. And when they're translating from Sa'idic to Mandarin, they're going to uh, make certain demands on the reader. They're going to try to get the reader in Mandarin to understand 
what the terms they're using in Saitic are. And again, these two possible hypotheses in uh, minority translation studies are also contradictory. So I um, conducted a case study of the translation of uh, the screenplay of, of the film Saitic Ballet uh, to make it empirical, to, to get some evidence. And what does the evidence show uh, briefly that uh, translations uh, uh, of the screenplay run the gamut from foreignization to domestication and beyond. Sometimes they, they totally reinvented the, uh, the text in, in translation. The, the text in translation um, uh, it doesn't bear any obvious resemblance to the, the original. They basically made it up. <laughs> they, uh, they, they said what they wanted to say, irrespective of what the, uh, the original text said. And for me, this is a metaphor for all the different ways that Saitic people have uh, adapted uh, to changing circumstances in the 20th century and the 21st century. I also found that the indigenous movement in Taiwan since 1980, uh, since the 1980s, has had an impact on translation. Uh, translations today into Saitic are more likely to be domesticating than 20 years ago, and translations out of Saitic are more likely to be foreignizing than 20 years ago. And an example is the translation of, uh, of Afterlife. Um, to translate Afterlife in uh, Chinese, I think we'd, we'd think of something like Huangquan. What do you think? The Yellow Springs as a translation of Afterlife? Huangquan is a term in, um, in Mandarin that means uh, Yellow Springs. It's an ancient uh, part of ancient Chinese belief in these yellow rivers where the soul will go and after a person dies. Um, so this is a Chinese uh, cultural concept. And 20 years ago, uh, Saitic people, Saitic translators would translate their notions of the afterlife into Huangquan, a domesticating translation because Huangquan, the Yellow Springs, is familiar to a Chinese reader. But they wouldn't do that today. They would tend to translate more literally uh, from Saitic. So there are two terms in Saitic, Tenlangan, which is uh, derived from alang, the word for village. So tenlangan is uh, the village to which people belong. And then the an at the end is, uh, is a suffix of place. So it's a place uh, of a village to which people belong, especially the ancestral spirits. It's this uh, village uh, where the ancestral spirits live. So that's one. And, and a translation uh, from Saitic into Mandarin or English today is much more likely to explain all that and not just translate it into Yellow Springs uh, or something else that the reader might be familiar with. This is a, a, a now a, there's a trend towards foreignizing translation out of Saitic. Another um, term for the afterlife is Tuhan, uh, which is Utuh, which means spirit. And then an is again the uh, suffix for place. So it's the place of the spirits. And uh, today a translation of the afterlife uh, out of Sadic into Mandarin uh, is going to tend to explain that and not just translate it into something that the reader is familiar with. And that, in a nutshell, is uh, the subtitle and the title of my book. Yeah, sounds good. And then thank you for unpacking the um, analytical and also theoretical framework of your book, but also giving us some of the practices and also examples about translation or also the uh, back translation as well. So uh, I guess now let's move on to the uh, translation team. And then who are on the uh, translation team? Okay, yeah. Um... 
Well, I mentioned two of them already. Uh, Dakis Bawan was the chief translator um, of the uh, lines in the in the screenplay that were to be delivered in the Gadaya in the di the Gadaya dialect, which was spoken by Monoruto and the other rebels. And Iwan Bedding is also a Degadaya speaker, and so she helped Dakis uh, revise his draft translation. And uh, Bawanawi, who's uh, an actor, he played uh, Monoruto's father in the film. Um, he also helped uh, retranslate or, or revise the draft translation of the Degadaya lines. But there were also lines in uh, Doda, um, the dialect spoken by uh, uh, Demu Wallis, uh, chief of uh, Dota uh, villages who uh, made friends with Japanese uh, police officer and participated in the, uh, the reprisal as a collaborator. But I mean no disrespect uh, to Demu Wallis or the Dota people in using the term uh, uh, collaborator. Um, and Wadendiro is a uh, Presbyterian pastor actually um, and he is Doda himself, but he preaches every Sunday in uh, Degadaya. He learned how to speak uh, Degadaya and he preaches in a village located very close to uh, Chingnil Bulo, uh, Alangluban in, in uh, uh, Saedic, to which the uh, survivors uh, from the rebellious villages were moved in 1931 by the Japanese after the rebellion. Um, Wadandiro uh, did the Dota lines and he collaborated with a guy called Wadantemu, but Wadantemu didn't play a very significant role in the translation. So I didn't actually mention, mention him in the book. And then um, there, the actors in the film were uh, from uh, Saedic uh, speaking places uh, or Atayal speaking uh, places. Uh, Atayal is a closely related uh, language to Saedic. Uh, it's, they're not mutually intelligible, but uh, the sounds are similar and a lot of the words are very similar. So the character uh, for Munaruto was played by an actor who is uh, a tile speaking. Uh, the um, actors who were Saedic speaking uh, spoke different dialects of Saedic, some of them, and they also put their stamp on the, uh, on the lines in their own various ways. Sometimes they, they changed the translation slightly from the translation that Dakis Bowen had made. Uh, they kind of retranslate, retranslated the lines uh, on set, uh, on, on the fly. So there were a number of different translators, but uh, primarily uh, for Dakis Bawan, Iwan Bering, um, Bawan Nawi for Degadaya, and Wadan Tiro for uh, Doda. Yeah, thank you for um, telling us about this uh, translation team and then also this uh, different layer of the uh, teamwork as well. That's translation in the script, but also you mentioned that the uh, on-site as well, the actors, they seem to have some uh, input in the uh, translation as well. So now... Um, um, I would like to use this opportunity to highlight uh, Dakis Bawan, who uh, recently um, passed away. And then can you tell us um, about uh, Dakis Bawan and then his role and contribution in the translation process and also his uh, other uh, publication and effort to revive the uh, Saedic culture? Yeah, uh, Dakis, um, one of my heroes. Um, Dakis is... Uh, folks were originally from Mahebu, uh, which is Monoruto's village, um, the rebellious village. 
And um, so he's the progeny of, uh, of rebels. And he grew up in uh, Qingliu Bulo along Gluban, to which the uh, survivors were moved in 1931. And he, um, I think he was born in 1954. He was uh, grew up in Alang Gluban and got educated in Puli in Mandarin. And he eventually became a mechanics teacher. I think he graduated from uh, Shida, Shivandashi, NTNU, National Taiwan Normal University, and uh, went on to teach mechanics at a local community, community college. And then in the 1980s, he got very sick. Uh, he had a liver liver problem. And so he uh, he met uh, Deng Xiangyang, who is famous as an oral historian, uh, as a kind of popular historian of the Usha incident, Monoruto's rebellion. And um, in his day job, Deng Xiangyang uh, did medical testing. He uh, did lab diagnostics. So uh, Monor or uh, sorry, Daki's Bowen's uh, 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 blood sample or uh, uh, whatever they tested to, to see what was going on with his liver. Uh, Deng Xiangyang was the one who did the, the testing for him. And so they, they met uh, for this reason because uh, Daki's had gotten sick. And uh, Deng Xiangyang was researching the Musha incident and he knew a lot of the survivors. And he encouraged uh, Daki's to go on a, a quest for his roots. Um, and so Daki started doing uh, interviews with survivors of, of the uh, Musha incident uh, in, in Sa'idic, because uh, Daki's could still speak uh, Sa'idic very well. And um, he became a community leader. He uh, was one of the leaders of the Sa'idic application for recognition to the government in 2008. And he collaborated with a linguist called Song Li Mei on a uh, dictionary which is now online. It's got uh, six or 7,000 headwords and uh, example sentences, uh, many of which are recorded by, by Daki. So if you want to hear his voice and Ewan Bedding's voice, you can go online and listen to their voices on this dictionary. And um, any anthropologist or linguist that's done research on uh, uh, Sadic uh, language or culture knows him and uh, has interviewed him. And uh, Wei De Sheng, the director of uh, Balai, uh, met him in the 1990s when he was uh, the audio guy for uh, Cho Rolong's uh, documentary film, uh, Gaia. And so Wei hired him um, to translate the uh, Dugadaya dialogue because uh, um, Dakis was the best. And uh, eventually Dakis uh, wrote uh, two books, Zhen Xiang Balai, which Balai, which means uh, truth ballet. It's uh, basically truth, truth. Um, in two different languages, truth in two different languages. Uh, and it's uh, kind of about the history behind the film and also about uh, uh, Dakis' experience on, on the set of the film when they were filming uh, all of the scenes. And he published this book uh, in 2011, and he wrote another book the next year, also about the history behind the film. Um, and these two books were partly marketing for the film. They're part of a series of books that were released to, to market the film. But there were also opportunities for Dakis to voice his opinion about uh, Sa'idic uh, history and culture. So as I said, uh, Dakis is my hero. He's like the behind-the-scenes hero of this film. And he is the, one of the reasons or the main reason why the film sounds so good. Um, when I heard uh, Dakis died last week, I got up some examples of his translations from my, my book. And here is uh, 
Daki says, a description of the afterlife, the rainbow, crossing the rainbow bridge into the afterlife. Uh, he says, Nikan kengan dudupunga, sutangayan thamatka, tenlangan rudanta. So he's got a triple rhyme on a and then another internal rhyme on an. And it sounds wonderful. And you can hear it in the film recited by Bawa Nawi, another one of the translators who played uh, Munurdo's father at about uh, 31 minutes into the film. And of course, Bawa Nawi uh, reads this much, uh, much better than I can. But even I, I hope some of, of uh, part of, or at least um, a suggestion of how wonderful it is uh, came through <laughs> when I, when I, when I read it just now. Sorry, uh, Li Ping, I, I should, I should translate it, I guess. Nikan Kingan Dudupunga is uh, there is a Kingan. Nikan is there is Kingan a or one. Dudupun is hunting ground. Ga, Ga is there. Nikan Kingan Dudupunga, there is a hunting ground there. Sutangayan, full of Tsamats or Tsamat is uh, wild animals, prey animals. Ka and Ka is a uh, a nominative uh, marker. It, it says uh, whatever is coming after it is is the uh, the subject. So full of prey animals is tenlangan uh, is the afterlife. Uh, the one of the terms for afterlife, which I explained above or earlier. Uh, rudan is elders. Ta is uh, our. So tenlangan rudan ta the, uh, the the afterlife or the the village uh, where the ancestral spirits are. So, so there you have it. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the translation. And um, in addition to Takis Bawan, there's another a key member in the uh, translation team. And you mentioned about your interaction with uh, Iwan Pelling uh, before. But I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about her uh, background and also her efforts in the um, revitalization of the Saitic culture? Sure, yeah. Um Iwan is uh, from uh, Dugadaya village. Um, there are two villages actually across uh, the street. Um, in Meishi, Meishi is, is the Mandarin name of the village, but there are actually two uh, Dugadaya villages there. And it's down the road from uh, what's now Usha, but in 1930 was uh, Musha. And um, the, these two, these two uh, Dugadaya villages did not take part in uh, Mona Rudo's rebellion. Uh, Iwan got uh, her start in early childhood education, but she was the sister of uh, an indigenous uh, Li Fa Weiyuan, a legislator named Wallis Bedding. Um, and so uh, she quit her job in an early childhood education and uh, helped her brother. And she got married to an anthropologist. And uh, so she started researching her, uh, her people, researching Sa'ida history and culture with Takis Bowen and others. And... Um, she committed herself to the uh, revitalization of Gaia, the Sadic word for culture, ethics in her village, and then throughout Sadic land, wherever Sadic people live. And she's still working at that. Uh, she's working at the language development office in Puli on uh, Wikipedia. They're, they're translating Wikipedia into Sadic. Um, so they spent, like me and you, they spend a lot of their time sitting in front of a screen uh, translating. And um, she's also running a master's program in Sa'idic culture at Providence University, where she was working 10 years ago when I first contacted her. 
And so in this master's program, they, they take uh, courses in uh, Mandarin from uh, specialists in law uh, or anthropology. And they also go into the villages and they uh, take courses with uh, village elders in Sa'idic, in uh, weaving or dancing or music or uh, hunting, uh, all various different, various different aspects of traditional lifestyle. Um, so, so that's what Iwan uh, Bedding is up to now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then um, thinking about the translators, their different backgrounds, right? And also the different concern about the Sayyidic culture and history. So I was wondering, um, how did the translation process look like? And especially when they maybe have disagreement about certain terms or certain words, or as you mentioned in your book, there are some uh, dramatic uh, confrontation uh, among them. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, processes? Yeah, um, uh, the word for drama used in the book or dramatic was uh, Japanese dorama. Uh, dorama is just a Japanese transliteration of drama. Or dramatic and it was used in a contemporary account of the Musha incident in Japanese this uh, Japanese commentator in 1931 was just am amazed uh, at the drama of the the incident at the heroism that uh, Monoruto had uh, displayed and the uh, his bravery and the bravery of, of uh, people like Dame Wallis the chief of uh, Toda villages that uh, participated in the um, in the reprisal and I used uh, dorama to describe the translation process because um, one might anticipate some drama uh, because uh, Wadandiro, translator of the, the Dota lines, was on the translation team. He was descended from uh, people that participated in the uh, reprisal. He was descended basically from, from people we could describe as collaborators. And um, Dakis Bawan, uh, his people uh, were uh, from rebellious villages. So we had uh, two people whose grandparents were literally at one another's throats in, in 1930. Um, and you would expect things to get pretty dramatic. But they didn't get that dramatic because uh, Warandiro and uh, Dakis Bawan were, were friends and collaborators in the sense that they were collaborating on various uh, projects of cultural um, revitalization. So at most, there were uh, disagreements. And most of the disagreements were uh, actually uh, between the uh, Dugadaya translators, between uh, people like Iwan Bedding and, uh, and Dakis Bawan. For example, in the scene in the film uh, where the Dugadaya warriors are, are running away, they're fleeing from uh, Bunun. Uh, warriors Bunun is this other indigenous group. And the Dugadaya uh, had met the Bunun to uh, trade because the Japanese had placed an embargo uh, on the Sa'idic uh, because they'd um, ambushed and massacred a, a Japanese um, uh, prospecting mission in 1897. History is pretty complicated, but uh, all you have to know uh, for the scene in question is that the uh, Dugadaya warriors are running away from the uh, Bunun. They're fleeing from the Bunun uh, warriors. And it's about 31 minutes into the film. And in uh, the Mandarin screenplay and in the subtitles of the film, uh, Munaruto says Tao, Gankwai Tao, which is literally flee or hurry up and flee, run away. 
the Bunun are attacking us. Uh, we're in danger. We're all going to die. We have to run away. And the, usually the translation of Tao uh, or flee in Sa'edic would be Kudurik. And that would be a literal translation. It's uh, the closest word in Sa'edic to Tao in Mandarin or flee in English. But according to Iwan Bering, no self-respecting, red-blooded uh, Sa'edic warrior would have said uh, Kudurik. Because if you say Kudurik, uh, it's like you're admitting you're a coward. I mean, no uh, 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 courageous man would run away from the, uh, the enemy. I mean, you'd stand and fight and you certainly wouldn't say Kudurik. You would be admitting your cowardice. So then one, one wonders what the word Kudurik is for in Sa'idic. Why would they even have such a term if nobody would ever use it? And I guess the idea is that uh, you would use it to talk about what the enemy did. The enemy saw us and they were afraid and they, they fled for their lives. They ran away. Um, so uh, perhaps it's for accusing the, uh, the other people of cowardice. So in this scene, when in uh, the Mandarin uh, uh, screenplay and in the subtitles, Muna says, Tao, flee, uh, he says, Tutui in the Sa'idic uh, translation. And Tutui means get up or wake up. And so it's a, a free translation. It translates the kind of the sense or it translates what Mona, according to Iwan Bedding, what Mona would have said in that circumstance. But then I noticed about three minutes later at about 34 minutes into the film that Mona Ruto's father, uh, who is played by Bawan Nawi, another one of the translators in the film, he says Kudurik in about the same circumstance. Uh, in, in the scene in question, he's not running away from the uh, Benuin, he's running away from the Japanese. Uh, actually, it's several years later, uh, the Japanese are pursuing uh, Tigadaya warriors through the, uh, through the jungle. So Monoruto's father in the film says Kudurik, uh, in other words, flee. And um, so I went to, to interview Bawan Nawi and I asked him, uh, why did you translate how or flee into Kudurik when to do so would, according to Iwan Bedding, be an admission of cowardice? And Bawan Nawi said, well, Iwan Bedding is a woman. So how does she know uh, what a warrior would have been thinking um, in 1903 or 19, uh, several years later, 1905, 1906? Um, but then I asked myself, how would Bawan Nawi uh, today know what a warrior was thinking almost 100 years ago. Um, because Bawanawi uh, told me himself, he's not, he's not a warrior. He's never killed anybody. Uh, he's not even a hunter. He, he's a farmer. He grows coffee. And uh, he was uh, kind of a day laborer uh, for most of his life. So how would he know uh, how uh, a Sadic warrior 100 years ago would have uh, used language? Anyway, according to Bawanawi, uh, he said, you'd have to be an imbecile not to, not to shout Kadurik in that circumstance. I mean, if your life's in danger uh, and you want to warn uh, the other members of your hunting party or headhunting party, you're going to shout Kadurik to tell them to flee. Um, so what we have is uh, two different translations of Tao or flee in Sa'edic. One appears to be foreignizing, according to uh, uh, Iwan Bedding, Kadurik is not what uh, a Sa'edic warrior would have said. And the other translation appears to be domesticating, tutui, because according again to Iwan Bering, 
Utwi to get up or to wake up is what a Sadic warrior would have said in that circumstance. And then we also have a, a disagreement among the translators um, about Sa'idic culture, about how a uh, Sadic warrior would have used language that seems to undermine the distinction uh, between uh, foreignizing and domesticating translations. Um, and at least in this case, the take-home point is that the judgments about whether a translation is literal or free are easy to make. It's easy to see that Kadurik is a literal translation of uh, Tao or flee. And Dutui, get up or wake up, is a free translation. But claims about whether a translation is domesticating or foreignizing, uh, whether it's uh, uh, it sounds normal in the target language or whether it sounds strange in the target language because the target language here is under the influence of the, of the original language, in this case, Mandarin, those kinds of, of uh, um, claims are harder to make because different, different people are going to have different ideas about what sounds normal in the language. Um, another example of disagreement between the translators was uh, about the uh, Rainbow Bridge. Um, according to Daki Spawan, the Rainbow Bridge that warriors will cross at the end of their lives uh, if they're qualified, if they've headhunted, is not a rainbow. Uh, the term in uh, Sa'edic is Hako Utuh. Hako is bridge or ladder, and Utuh is uh, spirit. And so Hako Utuh is spirit bridge or bridge of the spirits. And according to Dakis Bawan, the Hako Utuh uh, has been misunderstood by Wei De Sheng, the director of the film, and by many other people as a Tsai Hong Chao, a rainbow bridge, but it's not actually a rainbow. Um, and many scholars I've, I've found, they will cite uh, Dakis Bawan, who made this claim that uh, Wei De Sheng misunderstood Sa'edic culture, and they cite Dakis Bawan to criticize Wei De Sheng. But it turns out that not everyone agrees uh, with Dakis Bawan in the Sa'edic community about... Uh, whether or not the Hako Utok is a rainbow. A lot of people think it is a rainbow because Hako Utok, spirit uh, bridge, turns out to be the word for rainbow in, in Sa'edic. So no, no wonder people would think that. Um, so when I learned this, I felt like I could defend uh, Wei De Sheng, uh, remaining respectful of Sa'edic perspectives. Like I, I respect Daki's Bawan. Not saying he's wrong. Uh, I'm just saying that not every state person uh, agrees with him. And more importantly, I felt like I could adopt my own perspective. I'm an outsider. I'm I have an edic perspective, an outsider's perspective. Uh, but uh, I, I I was I was allowed uh, by the translators. They they let me have their my own perspective. They're not trying to impose their perspectives on me. Um, and I think. Uh, Overall, the disagreements between the translators, they're not just uh, petty, petty squabbling. Um, they're potentially dialectical or uh, creative or productive, and they're all part of the process by which uh, Sa'edic people are finding their place in the world and, and staking their claims to different uh, corners of the world. Yeah, and then uh, that sounds surely um, drama, dramatic, and especially in terms of uh, the uh, negotiation and also communication between Wei Dezhen and the translator, but also among the translator themselves who uh, work as a team to produce and create the uh, translation or back translation for the uh, Mandarin script and back to Sadiq uh, language. Um, so, uh, um, 
you mentioned a several example about a translate a back translation already. You mentioned about Huang Quan and then Jiao Ao, and also the example about Tao. So I guess now, um, uh, I guess maybe the last question about the book itself. It's about the back translation, and then you analyze this practice of back translation reveal the influence of modernity and also the、uh, contemporary situation of these.、Um, Translator as well. So I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about this、uh, um, modernity in this back translation? Yeah, great question, and this gets to、uh, the heart of the book.、Um, the example I'd like to share with you is、uh, from chapter three, and it's about how、uh, sexism was back translated out of the story、uh, that was recorded in 1927 when.、Uh, It was back translated into Saidic. The, Saidic. the story was originally recorded in 1927 by a linguist uh, called uh, uh, er,、uh, Asai Edin.、Um, in Saidic, he recorded it in, in, in International Phonetic Alphabet in、uh, Saidic, and then it was translated into Mandarin, and then back translated into Saidic、uh, about 80 years later. And、uh, between eight,、um, 1927. And 2009, the Saidic people had crossed this uh, kind of um, uh, blurry boundary between traditional and and uh, uh, tradition and modernity.、Um, so the respondent in 2000, 1927, the the person who told the story to the linguist, the Japanese linguist, was a guy, and he in the story says that a woman,、uh, her job was to weave、uh, tunics、uh, for men. Uh, for warriors, as if that's all women did. So the original story is pretty sexist、uh, by contemporary standards. And in Wei Dosheng's、uh, Mandarin language screenplay, which is filtered through、uh, translations into Mandarin done by Shen Mingren in 1990s, it's、uh, red battle garments. So what women did was weave red、uh, battle garments、uh, for their men. So it's still pretty sexist.、Uh, but in the back translation. Uh, into Saidic,、uh, they translate these red battle garments into midi,、uh, and midi is a, a weaving pattern. It's、uh, based on diamond shapes, and these diamonds in midi—it's also usually using red thread.、Uh, these diamonds, these red diamonds, are the eyes of the ancestors, Dorek Utuh, keeping、uh, watch on the living to make 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 sure that. They are living according to、uh, Gaia, the moral law. And the important point is that、uh, both men and women can wear midi. Midi is not just for men.、Um, moreover, in the final cut、uh, of the film, a line for a real woman is added to the screenplay and translated into Saidic. And、uh, the real woman in、uh, the final cut is told to Duni nak kengan lukus mentena ko. Hako utuh kuntu wilakna. Also, a, another lovely line,、um, an example of、uh, um, Dakis Bowen's、uh, translation prowess. And duni means weave, nak yourself, kengan one lukus garment. So weave、uh, a garment yourself, or weave a garment for yourself. Mantena the same, hako utuh spirit bridge or rainbow bridge kuntu wilak. Is beauty, and na is its. So its beauty is the same as the hako utuk. 
weave a garment for yourself that is as beautiful as the uh, rainbow bridge. And as I see it, that's how uh, the sexism in the original story is back translated out of the tradition uh, in 2009 at a time when Sadic people like uh, Iwan Bering, a woman, and Dakis Bawan, a man, a man were renegotiating uh, their uh, sexual division of labor. They were kind of reformulating or reimagining what women should do, what men should do, what roles the different sexes should play. So um, as is uh, probably clear, I, I contrasted uh, tradition and modernity in the book uh, because my Sadic translator friends do, and they they have translations for tradition. Gaya Utukruden is the tradition or the culture of the ancestral spirits, and Gaya Hundure or Gaya Saya is tradition of uh, recent times or uh, tradition now. That's their, their, uh, their translation of modernity. Um, so we can understand, I guess, uh, tradition as a break on modernity. Uh, if you're careening along in a vehicle, you're going too fast, you want to put the brakes on. So tradition is a kind of break to prevent us from going too fast. And uh, modernity, uh, we associate with uh, things like science, uh, increasing state capacity, sovereignty over every square inch of uh, earth, sovereignty as asserted by states on behalf of nations, uh, state monopoly on violence for the greater good, rapid technological uh, development, and uh, so forth, including this idea that men and women should be equal. And uh, it's not just we, we have this, this idea, I assume, uh, Ewan Bedding does too. Ewan Bedding's kind of a feminist, and uh, so she is Kind of participating in uh, the adaptation of uh, Sadic culture to uh, modernity, but um, as I hope is also clear, I don't. I don't think, uh, or I'm not saying that uh, tradition and modernity are diametrically opposed, as if uh, indigenous people are passive objects of modernization. I don't think that. I think that they have been active. They've been subjects of modernization. They're in the subject position as articulators. Uh, of uh, indigenous modernities, which brings us to the last big concept in the book, indigenous modernity. Um, and as I explained in, in the introduction, uh, indigenous modernity, uh, I borrowed this from Paul Barclay, who wrote uh, an important book on uh, this inc the uh, Musha incident called uh, Outcasts of Empire. Um, and Outcasts of Empire uh, was a contribution to the historiography of indigeneity. Paul's a, a historian. So uh, according to this uh, anthropologist, Ronald Neeson, the international indigenous movement dates to the 1960s when it became international. When uh, indigenous leaders started demanding that settler states like Taiwan or Canada or the United States respect uh, universal human rights, including uh, people's uh, rights to sovereignty, indigenous people's uh, sovereignty, um, Scott Simon is an anthropologist and an inspiration to me. Another of my heroes in Sa'idic studies would probably push the, the uh, date earlier that it was, uh, according to someone like Scott Simon, indigenous people had a sense of, of who they are and what their rights are before the 1960s. What Paul Barclay does in his book, Outcasts of Empire, is uh, claim that nation states created the conditions for indigenous peoples by incorporating native peoples like the Sa'idic uh, into nation states, but keeping them separate. So uh, in Taiwan, uh, in the late 
1890s and early 19, in the 20th century, in the 1900s, uh, the Japanese authorities cultivated personal relationships with indigenous chiefs uh, like uh, uh, Monoruto's uh, father and grandfather through uh, what Paul calls uh, wet diplomacy. So they got drunk with these chiefs on the frontier. Later on, uh, in by 1930, by the time of the uh, Musha incident, uh, uh, they were no longer uh, conducting wet diplomacy. They'd gone dry and they were trying to govern not through the, the local chiefs, but through subalterns who were Japanese or like the Hanaoka brothers had been educated uh, by the Japanese in Japanese. And this transition between wet diplomacy and dry governance is dramatized in a scene in uh, Saedic Ballet in the, in the film that I wrote my book about. Uh, Monoruto's son, Daromona, tries to treat a Japanese police officer to a drink at a wedding. And the officer refuses to drink with him. And this fight breaks out and uh, the uh, Japanese uh, officer gets uh, beaten up. And he reports uh, uh, Monoruto's son, Tado, for assault uh, to the higher authorities. And then the next day, Mona uh, takes this uh, uh, wine, takes some wine, several bottles of wine, to see the police officer and offers his uh, personal apology. Um, and the, uh, the subaltern, Japanese subaltern, refuses to accept his apology, refuses to accept um, uh, the wine. And so the age of wet diplomacy is over and has been replaced by dry uh, governance. And this is probably part of the reason that Monoruto uh, launched his rebellion is because he, uh, the, the authority, the Japanese authorities no longer needed him. He no longer had much power or as much power as his father and grandfather had had. Um, that's uh, Paul's idea of indigenous modernity as a modern phenomenon. It was only uh, because nation states created uh, the conditions for uh, these uh, separate indigenous groups uh, by incorporating them into the state but keeping them separate. Indigenous people in Taiwan uh, were kept separate uh, even in the post-war era. I remember when I first went to Taiwan, you, you had to apply for a permit to visit the mountain area because it was, uh, um, it was uh, a sensitive uh, region. That's where the indigenous people lived. They were kept separate uh, territorially. And that's one of the reasons why they uh, maintained their distinct cultures and languages as long as they uh, did or as long as they have. Um, my own notion of indigenous modernity is a little bit different. Um, I'm not saying that uh, indigenous people uh, represent tradition or defend their traditions and that they are uh, transformed against their will by modernity. It's rather that, uh, like everyone else, they've been adapting their cultures to all the changing circumstances that we associate with uh, modernity. And however traditional they may be, they sometimes seem awfully liberal to me. Uh, Iwan Bedding is a feminist. I went to a sermon that uh, uh, Wadandiro preached in, uh, in Dagadaya in, uh, on Sunday, and he was defending gay marriage, which is not uh, something that we associate usually with indigenous uh, tradition. According to, to Wadandiro's uh, contemporary uh, uh, interpretation of Sa'idic culture, it's totally okay. It's part of Sa'idic culture. Um, so Sadic tradition today is not just a break on modernity. Uh, they're actually uh, pushing modernity uh, in all different directions, um, uh, offering us uh, alternative indigenous uh, modernities. And uh, idealistically, we can review 
or we can regard such uh, alternative uh, indigenous modernities as progressive and as alternatives to the way, uh, the ways in which we live now that might in some ways be better than the ways in which we uh, live now. Yeah, um, and um, thank you, Daryl, for unpacking this um, relation between the tradition and uh, cultures and also a modernity and how the uh, translators and also you yourself as a researcher approach the uh, contemporary and also modern interpretation of the uh, uh, culture and also the uh, modernity, how the modernity shape the culture as well. And uh, well, uh, we've uh, taken a lot of your time. So um, now, uh, uh, per the tradition of uh, New Books Network, so uh, the uh, final question, the traditional final question here is, uh, Daryl, can you uh, share with us what you are working on right now or what your next project will be? Yeah, um, so I'm still working on uh, indigenous translation and Saedic translation. Uh, a couple of projects. I'm working on uh, the translation of sovereignty um, into Mandarin, Zhujian, and then into Saedic. It's translated as Tundahedan, which means you belong to the earth and therefore you uh, possess uh, the earth. That's their translation of, uh, of sovereignty. So to be sovereign, to have sovereignty over, over, uh, over territory, you've got to belong to that territory. So it's, it's a, I guess, a reminder to treat the territory well. It's not like you can extract resources uh, from it and de degrade it. Uh, absolutely not. To, to be sovereign means you have to take good care of uh, your territory. I think that's a healthy idea of sovereignty. And I also think that indigenous groups like the Saedic have got to contrib contribute to the discussion of what sovereignty means. So in the article, I'm, I'm uh, back translating Tundahedan, uh, 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 I'm back translating uh, the Saedic translation of uh, sovereignty back into, into English to try to contribute to what sovereignty means. Um, another uh, project is to look at um, a translation of pop music lyrics. There are a couple of uh, pop musicians, like three pop musicians that I know of that are translating uh, pop music lyrics from uh, Mandarin into Saedic. Uh, as part of language revitalization, they're trying to learn to speak Saedic themselves. And so the way that they translate the lyrics that they write in Mandarin into Saedic is pedagogical, like they include uh, uh, mnemonic, they include um, uh, memory aids in the translation to help people listening to the Saedic uh, translation of the lyrics remember what the words mean. And hopefully they're going to get young people uh, enthusiastic about learning the language and singing along as part of how they're learning uh, traditional language, ancestral languages like, uh, like Saedic. And uh, finally, I'm looking at the um, recording and translation of uh, traditional uh, environmental knowledge. Um, I'm looking at, at indigenous people like Saedic uh, people as auto-ethnobiologists. They're recording their own um, knowledge of uh, nature, uh, often in their ancestral languages. So Saedic people are writing about their knowledge of plants in Saedic, and then they're translating this knowledge into uh, Mandarin. And uh, when they're writing about plants in their traditional lifestyle in Saedic, they're also drawing on knowledge that they uh, learn about uh, by reading Mandarin texts. So 
the uh, the texts in in Sa'idic um, are, are drawing on knowledge that's articulated in, in in Mandarin. So it's a process of translation that is transforming uh, Sa'idic uh, uh, language and culture, and and hopefully will transform uh, Mandarin and uh, uh, a field that's called uh, ethnobotany is the study of how people um, make use of plants and the ideas that people have of of plants. And uh, ethnobotany is predicated on the on the idea that uh, peoples like the Sa'idic have uh, knowledge of nature uh, that we can learn from and that deserves our respect as a kind of science. And I'm pursuing this research um, as part of my own uh, personal development. I'm I'm trying to learn. More about nature, and so I'm I'm learning about nature by studying how Sadic people are recording their knowledge of nature, and they're also learning about nature too. And um, I guess as part of my own uh, personal resistance to this uh, possible future on Mars, like Elon Musk wants to take us to Mars, and and what's his name uh, Zuckerberg wants us to live in these uh, uh, artificial and or virtual reality headsets in the metaverse. And I, I think this is horrible. I, I, I want to live in, uh, in, the, in the world. I want to live close to nature. I want to learn about nature, uh, treat nature well. And I, I think I can learn from Sa'idi people about how to do that. All right. Sounds good. And then uh, all these projects, especially about back translations, about the, the idea about sovereignty and also about this, uh, the efforts in the popular music and also in relation to the environmental knowledge, um, all sounds amazing. And then uh, look forward to uh, seeing your uh, publications and also hearing more about the uh, progress of the uh, these project as well. Thanks, Li Ping. Yeah. And um, so, um, Daryl, I want to thank you for um, being on the show today. I really enjoy it. And I take a lot of notes as well. <laughs> so uh, amazing. And then, uh, definitely recommend the, uh, our listeners to definitely check out this book as well. There are many uh, very interesting and important example that Daryl uh, analyzed uh, incredibly in the book. And um, so um, that's all for uh, today's interview. And then thank you, Daryl, again, for agreeing to be on the show and then having this uh, great uh, interview. Okay, thanks for having me on the podcast. And then thank you, our audience, for uh, being with us and then joining us today. So take care and then see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.